The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining us for the hour here is Tony Nash of Complete Intelligence. I've found a lot of people that I respect following Tony. I saw a few people saying they were excited to hear what Tony has to say, so hopefully we'll have a good conversation here. Tony, for those who aren't familiar with your background, talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in the data side of markets and forecasting in general, and what you're doing with Complete Intelligence. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. I have followed you for probably 10 or 15 years. I am very uh, sorry for so. that. I am very, very sorry for that. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I got involved in data way back in the late 90s when I was in Silicon Valley, and I built a couple of research firms focused on technology businesses. I then took about probably eight years to become an operator. I did a turnaround uh, in Asia, of a telecom firm. I built a firm in Sri Lanka during the Civil War. And then I started down the research front again. I was the global head of research for The Economist. And I was the Asia head of consulting for a company called IHS Market, which is now owned by S&P. And then after that, I started Complete Intelligence. So, you know, my background is really all about data, but it's also all about understanding the operational context of that data. And I think it's very hard for people to really understand what data means without understanding how people use it. Okay, so that's maybe a good direction to start with, that point about context with data, because I think part of that context is understanding what domains data is more appropriate for forecasting than others, right? So I always made this argument that um, there are certain domains in particular when it comes to, I would argue, investing that have sort of a chaotic chaotic system element to them, right? Where small uh, changes can have ripple effects. So it's hard to necessarily to to sort of make a direct link between a strong set of variables and the actual outcome, because there's always a degree of randomness. Whereas something that's more scientific, right? That doesn't have that kind of chaos theory element is it's clearer. So talk about that point about context when it comes to looking at data and again, the kind of domains where data is more appropriate to really have more conviction in than others. Yeah. Okay. So that's a a great place to start. So the, the first thing I would say is take every macro variable that you know of and throw it out the window. It's all garbage data, a hundred percent of it. Okay. I would never trade based on macro data. We've tested 
macro data over the years, and it's it's just garbage. It doesn't matter the country. It you know we hear people saying that China makes up their data. While that may be true, you can kind of fill in the blank on almost any country, because I don't know how much you guys understand about macro data, but it is not market clearing data. Okay, like like uh, you know an equity price or a commodity price. Macroeconomic data is purely academic made-up data that is a proxy for activity. It's a second or third derivative of actual activity by the time you see, say, a CPI print, which is coming out tomorrow, right? So, and it's late and it's really not all that meaningful. So I wouldn't really make a trade or put a strategy together based on macro data, even historical macro data. Every OECD country revises their data by, what, four times or something. So you see a a print for CPI data tomorrow. That's a preliminary print, and that's revised several times before it's, quote, unquote, actual. And so, you know, you, you you really can't make decisions using macroeconomic data beyond a directional decision. Okay, so if you follow me on Twitter, you see I'm very critical macro data all the time. I'm very sarcastic about it. I think the more specific you can get, you know, if you have to look at, say, national data or macroeconomic data, I would look at very low level data. The more specific you can get, the better. Things like household surveys or, you know, communist and socialist countries, you know, Chinese data at the very specific level can be very interesting. Okay, uh, government data, the high level data in every country, I consider it garbage data in every country. So you're looking at very low level, very specific government or multilateral data. That's interesting. The closer you get to market clearing data, the better, because that's a real price, right? A real price history on stuff is better. And company data is is the best. And of course, company data is revised at times. But that really helps you understand what's happening at the kind of firm level and what's happening at the transaction level. So, you know, those are the kind of hierarchies of data that I would look at. So, OK, this is a, this is a great that's a great point. You mentioned that it's it's you said very these variables, these macro variables are proxies for for activity. Right. They're they're really more proxies for narratives. Right. Because and, and that's where I think, you know, you mentioned sarcasm. Almost 99% of my tweets at this point are sarcasm because when Rome is burning, what the hell is someone going to do except joke about it, right? Because I can't change right. it, right? So, right? so, and to that point, you know, I, I share a lot of that cynicism around data that people will often reference in the financial media that sounds really interesting, sounds like it's predictive, but when you actually test it, to your point, you throw it out because it doesn't work, right? There's no real predictive element to it. So we'll get into some of the predictive stuff that you talk about, but but I want to hit a little bit on this market clearing phrase you kept on using. Explain explain to the audience what you mean by market clearing. Data where there is a buyer and a seller. To actual prices of some asset class or something like that. Yep, that's right. Okay, okay. So that makes sense. Okay. Now, again, I go back to there's certain domains that data is more clear in terms of cause and effect and and getting a sense of probabilities. The challenge with markets, as we know, is that the probabilities change second by second, because not mm-hmm. only does that mean, meaningless data change second by second, but you know the, the market clearing data changes second by second, right? Going back to that point. So with what you do with complete intelligence, talk us through a little bit, what are some of the, the variables that you tend to find have some predictive power? And how do you think about 
confidence when it comes to sure. any kind of decision made based on those variables. Sure. Okay. So before I do that, let me get into why I started Complete Intelligence, because if you guys, if none of you have started a firm before, don't do it. It's really, really hard. <laughs> so um, people in the back, because I got to tell you, <laughs> you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going through hell, and all you got is people on Twitter kicking you when you're down, when it's the small sample. Anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was where I had worked for two, two very large research firms, The Economist and IHS Market. And I saw that both of them claimed to have very detailed and intricate models, okay, of the global economy, industries, whatever, okay, for all of the intricate models. And I have never spoken with a global research firm, a data firm that is different from this. And if, if I'm wrong, then somebody please correct me. But at the end of that whole model pipeline is somebody who says, no, that's a little bit too high or a little bit too low, and they change the number, okay, to whatever they wanted it to be in the first place. So, and I tell you, 100% of research firms out there with forecasts today have a manual process at the end of their quote-unquote model, 100% of them. Again, if there's somebody else that doesn't do that, I am happy to be corrected. Okay, but I had done that for a decade and I, I felt like a hypocrite when I would talk to clients. So I started Complete Intelligence because I wanted to build 100 percent machine driven forecasts across economics, across market, across equities, across commodities, across currencies. Okay, and we've done that. So we have a, a multi-phase, multi-layer machine learning process that takes in billions of data items. We're running trillions of calculations every week when we reforecast our data. Right now, the interval of our forecast is monthly interval forecast. So if people are looking at daily prices, that's not what we're doing now. Okay, we are, we will be launching, we will be launching daily interval forecasts, I would say probably before the end of the year to be conservative, but but we're doing monthly interval forecasts now. Now why is everything I've said is meaningless unless we measure our error, okay? So for every forecast that we do, and if you log into our website, you can see whether it's the gold price, the S&P 500, USDJPY, you know, molybdenum or, you know, whatever, we track our error for every month for everything that we do, okay? So if you want to understand your risk associated with using our data, it's there right in front of you with the error calculations, okay? It's only fair. If I'm going to sell you a forecast, you should be able to understand how wrong we've been in the past before you use that as a decision-making input. Okay? Well, by the way, maybe just add some framework on that because I think it's, that's interesting. So what you call error, I call luck, right? Because right? luck is both good or bad. I always make that point that with any equation, any set of variables, you're going to have that error is is the luck component that you can't control. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the equation is wrong, right? It just means that for whatever reason, that error in that moment in time was higher or lower than you might otherwise want. Or I guess higher. Well, there is no such thing as zero error. And anybody who tells you that they have zero error is obviously, they're an economist. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't understand how markets work. So, there is always error in every calculation. So the reason we track error is because that serves as a feedback loop into our machine learning process, 
Okay. And so, you know, we have feedback loops every week as we, and what we're doing right now is every Friday, end of day, we will download global data process over the weekend, have a new forecast on Monday morning. Okay. And so all of that error, whether it's near-term error, short-term error, or say medium-term error, we feed that all back in to help correct and understand what's going on within our process. And we have, like I said, we have a multi-phase process in our machine learning uh, platform. So error is simply understanding the risk associated with using, with using our platform. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Right, which is basically how apt is thing that you're forecasting to that error, which is, again, luck, good good or bad. I'm, I'm trying to put it in sort of a qualitative framework also, because I think yeah. there's errors in, in life, obviously, too, right? And some of them are good or bad, but there's but always, you know, those elements. Right. But here's here's what I would, and I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dispute this too much, but I think there is, so you use the word luck and that's fine. I, that's fine. But I think luck has a bit to do with the human element of a decision. Okay. We're using math and code. There's zero human interaction with the data and with the process. And so I wouldn't necessarily call it luck. I mean, it literally is error. Like our algorithms got it wrong. So, and if, if you want to call it luck, that's absolutely fine. But I would say luck is more of a human, say an outcome associated with a human decision, more than something that's machine driven, that's iterating. Again, we're doing trillions of calculations every week to get our, our forecasts out there. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. And maybe for the audience, Tony, uh, explain what machine learning is now. Sure. I, I once, you know, I, I, I developed an app called How You Dish and I was having dinner with the the head developer once and he said he just came back from a a conference about machine learning and he was just basically while having drinks with me laughing and joking saying everybody use this term machine learning but it's really just regression analysis right so so talk talk about machine learning what is actual machine learning how how important is uh recent data to changes in the regression because i assume that's part of the the sort of dynamic nature of what you do just kind of riff on that for a bit Okay, so when I first started Complete Intelligence, I was really cynical about AI. And I spoke to somebody in Silicon Valley and asked the same question, what is AI? And this person said, well, AI is everything from a basic, a basic, uh, say, uh, quadratic equation, you know, upward. You know, I'm not necessarily sure that I agree that something that simple would be considered artificial intelligence. What we're really doing with machine learning is there are really three basic phases. Okay. You have a pre-process, which is looking at your data to understand things like anomalies, missing data, weird behavior, these sorts of things. Okay. So that's the first phase that we look at. To be honest, that's the hardest one to get right. Okay. 
a lot of people want to talk about the forecasting methodologies and the forecasting algorithms. That's great. And that's the that's the sexy part of ML. But really, the conditioning and the pre-process is the is the hardest part. And it's the most necessary part. Okay. When we then go into the forecasting aspect of it, we're using what's called an ensemble approach. So we have a number of algorithms that we use. And let's say they're there are 15 algorithms, okay, that we use. We're looking at a potential combinatorial approach of any individual or combination of those algorithms based on the time horizon that we're forecasting, okay? So we're not saying, you know, a simple regression is the way to go. We're saying, you know, there may be a neural network approach. There may be a neural network approach in combination with some sort of ARIMA approach. We're saying, you know, something like that, right? And so we test all of those permutations for every historical period that we're looking at. So I think traditionally, when I look back at kind of quote unquote building models, you know, in Excel, we would build a formula and that formula was fairly static. Okay. And every time you did say a crude oil forecast, you had this static formula that you set your data against and, and a number came out. We don't have static formulas at all. To forecast crude oil, every single week we start at obviously understanding what we did in the past, but also retesting and reweighting every single alg algorithmic approach that we have, and then recombining them based upon the activity that happened on a daily basis in that previous week and in the history. Okay, so that's phase two, the forecasting approach. And then phase three is the post process, right? And so the post-process is understanding the, the forecast output. Is it a flat line, right? If it's a flat line, then there's something wrong. Is it, you know, a straight line up? Then that, there's something, you know, th those are to use some extremes, right? But, you know, we have to test the output to understand if it's, uh, if it's reasonable, right? So it's really an automated gut check on the reasonableness of the outcome. And then we'll, we'll go back and correct you know, outliers potentially reforecast and then we'll publish. Okay. So there are really three phases to what we do. And I would think three phases to to most machine learning approaches. And so when we talk about machine learning, that's really what we're talking about is that that really generally three-phase process and then the feedback loop that always goes back into that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Let's get to it's really boring after a while. No, 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 but 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 I think that's it's it's you know, part of what I want to do with these spaces is, is is try to get people to understand, you know, beyond sort of just the headline or or the thing that is thrown out there as a term to what does that actually mean in practice. You don't have to know it fully right. in depth the way the that you do, but I think having that that context is important. I would say on the idea generation side and on the risk management side right now. Okay. Now the the other thing that I didn't cover is Obviously, we're doing markets, but we also do, we use our platform to automate the budgeting process within enterprises, okay? So we work with very large organizations, and the budget process within these large organizations can take anywhere from, say, four to six months, and they take hundreds of people. And so we take that down to really interacting with one person in that organization, and we do it in, say, less than 24 hours. And we build them a continuous budget every month. Once accounting close happens, we get their new data. And then we send them a new, say, 18-month forward-looking forecast for them. So their FP&A team doesn't have to dig around and beg people for information and you know all that stuff. 
So some of this is on the firm, could be on the firm evaluation side as well, right? How will a firm perform? Nobody's using us for that, but the firms themselves are using that to help them automate their budgeting process. So some of that could be on the, say, filtering side and the idea generation side as well. So we, we do not force our own GL structure onto the clients. We integrate directly with their SAP or Oracle or other ERP uh, database. We take on their, their GL structure at whatever levels they want. We have found that there is very little deterioration from, say, the second or third level GL to, say, the sixth or seventh level GL in terms of the accuracy of our forecast. So, and when we started doing this, it really surprised me. We do a, say, a team level forecast for a, you know, $10, $12 billion organization, six layers down within their GL. And we see very little deterioration when we go down six levels than when we do it at, say, two levels, which is, you know, it really, to me, it speaks to the robustness of our process. But would we consider Anaplan a competitor? Not really. They're, they're not necessarily doing the kind of, a budget automation that we're doing, uh, at least that I'm aware of. I know that there are guys like Hyperion who do what we're doing, but again, their sophistication isn't necessarily what we're doing and they do a great job and Hyperion is a great organization. I think Oracle gave them a new name now, but they're not necessarily using the same machine learning approaches that we're using. And our clients have told us that they don't get the same result with using that type of say ERP originated or ERP add-on budgeting process. Yep. So I would say we can't, we can do company specific information for a customer if that's what they want. Okay. We don't necessarily have that on our platform today, aside from say individual ticker symbols. Okay. But we're not forecasting say the PL of Apple or something like that, or the balance sheet of Apple, something we could, we could do in a pretty straightforward manner. But we do that on a customer by customer basis. So what we're forecasting right now are currency pairs, commodities, about 120 commodities, and global equity indices. Okay. We are beta testing individual equity tickers, and we probably won't introduce those fully on the platform until we have our daily interval forecast ready to go to market. But those are still, we're still working some kinks out of those. And we'll have those ready probably within a few months. Okay, so let's, let's talk about commodities here for a bit. Tony, obviously, this mm-hmm. is where a lot of people's attention has gone to. What what kind of variables, and I know you said you have a, a whole bunch of variables that, that are being incorporated here, but are there certain variables in particular when it comes to oil and other commodities that have a higher predictive power than others? There are. I think, you know, one of the stories that I tell pretty often, and this really shocks people, is when we look at things like like gold, okay, I'm not trying to deflect from your oral question, but just to, you know, we've, we've spoken with a number of sugar traders over the year, years, okay? And so we tell them that, say, the gold price and the sugar price, there may not necessarily be a, say, short-term, say, correlation there, but there is a lot of predictive capability there, and we talk them through why. And I think the thing that we get out of the machine learning approach, and we cast a wide net, we're not forcing correlations, is that we'll find some unexpected, say, drivers, although drivers implies a causal nature, and we're not trying to imply causality anywhere, 
Okay, we're looking at kind of co-movement in markets over time and understanding how things work in a lead lag basis with some sort of indirect causality, as well as, say, a T0 or current state movement. So with crude oil, you know, there are so many supply side factors that are impacting that price right now that I can't necessarily point to, say, another commodity that is having an impact on that. It really is a lot of the supply side and sentimental factors that are impacting those prices uh, right now. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, how did, because you mentioned it's, I think the interval is once a month, right? So given the speed with which inflation has moved and yields have moved, how does a machine learning process adapt to sudden spikes or massive deltas in, in variable movement, right? Because there's always a degree of randomness going back to error, right? And sure. you can make an argument that the larger a move is, the that, that may actually be more error. But that, I think that's an interesting discussion. Yep. So I'll tell you where we were, say, two years ago when 2020 hit versus today. Okay, so in March of 2020, April of 2020, everything fell apart. I don't think there were any models that caught what was going to happen. It was an exogenous event that hit markets and it happened very quickly. So in June, I was talking with someone who is with one of the largest software companies in the world. And they said, hey, has your AI caught up to markets yet? Because ours is still lost. And you guys would be shocked if I told you who this was, because you would expect them to know exactly what's going to happen before it happens. Okay. I'll be honest. I think it was all of them. But the, the reality is, you know, Michael, you were you were saying that ML is just regression analysis. I think a lot of the large firms that are doing time series forecasting really are looking at regression and derivatives of regression as kind of their only approaches because it works a lot of the time, right? So so we had we had about a two-month delay at that point. And part of it was because so by by June, we had caught up to the market. Okay. And we had started in February to iterate twice a month. We were doing once a month. I hope you guys can understand with machine learning, two factors are we're always adjusting our algorithms, okay? We're always incorporating new algorithms. We're always, you know, making sure that we can keep up with markets because you cannot be static in machine learning, okay? The other thing is we're always adding capacity. Why? Because we have to iterate again and again and again to make sure that we understand the changes in markets, okay? So at that time, we were only iterating twice a month. And so it took us a while to catch up. Guys like this major technology firm and other major technology firms, they just couldn't figure it out. And I suspect that some of them probably manually intervened to ensure that their models caught up with markets. I don't want to you know, accuse any individual company, but the temptation is always there, especially for people who don't report their error. The temptation is always there for people to manually intervene in their forecast process. Okay, so now today... If we look, for example, at how are we catching changes in markets, okay? So if I look at the S&P 500 for April, for example, our error rate for the S&P 500 for April, I think, was 0.6%, okay? Now, in May, it changed. It deteriorated a little bit to, I think, 4 or 6%. I'm sorry, I, I don't remember the exact number offhand, but it deteriorated, right? But, you know, when there are dramatic changes, 
because we're iterating at least once a week, if not twice a week, we're catching those inflections much, much faster. And what we're having to do, and, and this is a function of the liquidity adjustments, is where in the past you could have a trend and adjust for that trend and account for that trend. We're really having to, our algorithms are having to select more methodologies with recency bias because we're seeing kind of micro-volatility in markets. And so, like, again, so, 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 so for the audience, kind of like the difference between a simple moving average versus like an exponential moving average, right? Where you're, you're weighting the more recent data uh, sooner. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Could be, yeah. Yeah, that's a very very simple approach, but yeah, it, it would be something like that. That's right. Yeah, so when we work with enterprise customers, that level of engagement is very tight because, you know, when we're getting kind of the full set of financial data from a client, obviously they're very vested in that process. So that's different from, say, a small portfolio manager subscribing to RCI Futures product where we're doing forecasts and they have their own risk process in place and they can, you know, they can do whatever they want with it. Right. But again, with our enterprise clients, we are measuring our error so they can see the result of our, say, our continuous budgeting process. Okay. So if we're doing, let's say we launch with a customer in, in May, you know, they close their May books in June, get them over to us, redo our forecast and send it over to them and let them know what our error rate was in May. Okay. So they can, decide how we're doing by department, by team, by product, by whatever, based upon the error rates that we're giving at every line item. Okay. So they can select, and we're not doing kind of capital projects budgets. We're doing business as usual budgets. So they can decide what they want to take and what they don't want to take. It's really up to them. But we do talk through that with them. And then over time, they just start to understand how we work and, and take it on within their own internal process. Let's go back a little bit, uh, Tony. So you mentioned you do this machine learning forecasting work when it comes to broader economics, markets, and currency. Of those three, which has the most variability and randomness? In other words, which tends to have a, a higher error whenever you do any kind of machine learning to try to forecast what comes next? I would say it depends on the equity market, but probably equity markets. When there are exogenous shocks, so our error for April of 2020, again, we don't hide this from anybody. It, it was not good, but it wasn't good for anybody, right? And so, but in general, it depends on the equity market, but some of the emerging equity markets, EM equity markets are pretty volatile. We do have some commodities like, say, rhodium, for example, okay? Pretty illiquid market, pretty small base of people who trade it and highly volatile. So something like rhodium, over the years, our error rates there have not necessarily been something that we're, we're telling people to use that as a, as a basis to trade. But obviously, it's a hard problem, right? And so, you know, we're iterating that through our ML process 
And looking at highly volatile commodities is something that we that we focus on and work to improve those error rates. Here. I, hope, I hope you find this to be an interesting conversation because I think it's a, a part of the of the way of looking at markets, which not too many people are themselves maybe using, but is worth sort of considering because I always make it a point that nobody can predict the future, but we all have to take actions based on that unknowable future. So to the extent that there might be some data or some conclusions that at least are looking at variables that historically have some degree of predictive power, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to necessarily be better off, but at least you have something to hang your hat on. Right, I think that's kind of an aspect to investing here. Now, I want to I want to go a little bit, Tony, to to what you had mentioned earlier. You had lived abroad for a while uh, in Europe, and when I was starting to record these spaces to put up on my YouTube channel, the first one I I did that uh, on was with Dan Arbus, and the topic of that space was around this sort of new world order that seems okay. to be shaping up. I want you to just talk from a geopolitical perspective how you're viewing perhaps changing alliances because of Russia Ukraine. And maybe even dovetail that a little bit into the machine learning side, because geopolitics is a variable which is probably quite volatile in some periods. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so with the evolving geopolitical order, I would say rather than kind of picking countries and saying it's lining up against X country or lining up with X country or Y country, I would say we've entered an era of opportunistic geopolitics. Okay, you know, we had the Cold War where we had a fairly static order where people were with either red team or blue team. You know, that has, that changed in the 90s, of course, where you kind of had the kind of the superpower. And that's been changing over the last, say, 15 years with, say, China allegedly becoming kind of stronger and so on and so forth. So, but we've entered a a fairly chaotic era with, say, opportunistic macroeconomic relations, or sorry, um, geopolitical relationships. And I think one of the uh, kind of top relationships that is purely opportunistic today is the China-Russia relationship. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk about China-Russia having this, you know, this amazing new relationship and they're deep and, you know, you know, they're going to go to war together or whatever. We've seen over the past, say, three, four months that that's just not the case. And I've been saying this for years just for kind of people's background actually advised uh, the Chinese government, the NDRC, which is the economic planning unit of the central government on a product or on an initiative called the Belt and Road Initiative. Okay. I did that for two years. I was in and out of Beijing. I never took a dime for it. I never took expense reimbursement. Just to be clear, I'm not a CCP kind of pawn, but my view was if the Chinese government is spending a trillion dollars, I want to see if I can impact kind of good good spend for that. So I have seen the inside of the Chinese government and how it works. And and I also, in the 80s and 90s, spoke Russian and studied a lot on the Russian government and have a, a good idea about how totalitarian governments work. So I think in general, if we thought America first was offensive in the last administration, then you really don't want to learn about Chinese politics and you really don't want to learn about Russian politics because they make America first look like a kindergarten. And so whenever you have ultra-nationalistic politics, any diplomatic relationship is an opportunistic relationship. And I always ask people who claim to be China experts, but say, please tell me and name one Chinese ally. Give me one ally of China and you can't. North Korea, Pakistan, I mean, who is an ally of China? There isn't an ally of China. 
There is a transactional opportunistic relationship with China, but there is not an ally with China. And so, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, if you take that backdrop, looking at what's happening in the world today, it makes a whole lot more sense. And a lot of the doomsayers out there saying China is going to fall and it's going to have this catastrophic impact and all this other stuff. You know, the opportunism that we see at the nation state level pervades into the bureaucracy. So the bureaucracy, we hear about Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping is almost a fictional character. I, I hate to be you know, that extreme on it, but there is the aura of Xi Jinping and there is the reality of Xi Jinping. Just a guy. He's not Mao Zedong. He doesn't have the power that supposed Western Chinese experts claim that he has. He's just a guy. Okay. And so the relationships within the Chinese bureaucracy are purely transactional and they are purely opportunistic. So again, if you take that perspective and you look at what's happening in geopolitics, hopefully you can see things through a, new, a different lens. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you framed it in, that, in those terms because I think it's very hard for people to really understand some of these dynamics when it's almost presented like a like almost like a like a like the story for a movie, right? For for what could be a conflict to come by the media, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, and it's almost overly simplified. Right when when you hear this type of talk. So again, I want to go back into how does that dovetail into actual data? Right, maybe it doesn't at all. When you have some of these dynamics and you talk about market clearing data, you're going to probably see market movement somewhat respond off of geopolitical uh, changes. Um, talk about anything that you've kind of seen as far as that goes, and how should investors consider geopolitical risk or maybe not consider geopolitical risk? Yeah, I think well, when you see geopolitical adjustments today, all that really is. I don't mean to overly simplify it, but it's a risk calibration, right? So you know, Russia invades Ukraine, that's really a, a risk calibration. How much risk do we want to accept? And then what opportunities are there, right? So when you hear about China, you have to look at what risk is China willing to accept for actions that it takes? Keeping in mind that China has a very complicated domestic, domestic political environment with COVID shutdown, lockdowns, and, you know, all of this stuff. So, you know, having worked with and known some really smart Chinese bureaucrats over the years, you know, these guys are very concerned with the domestic environment. And I don't, although there are idiot, you know, generals and economists here and there who say really stupid stuff about China should take over TSMC and China should invade Taiwan, these sorts of things. My conversations over the years have been with very pragmatic and professional individuals within the bureaucracy. So, you know, do I agree with their policies? Not a lot of them, but they are well thought out in general. So so I think just because we hear talk from some journalist in Beijing who lives a very sheltered life about some potential thing that may happen, I don't think we necessarily need to calibrate our risk based on the day-to-day -day story flow. I think we need to look at like – so. You know, there's a. I'm sure you all, you all know who Leland Miller is in China Beige Book. Like, yeah, he has I, I a not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, he has a proxy of the Chinese economy, and you know that's a very interesting way to look at and an interesting lens to look through China or through to look at China or whatever. But um, so you know, I think that the day to day headlines, if you follow those, you're really just going to get a lot of volatility. But if you try to understand what's actually happening, you'll get a clearer picture. Um, it's not necessarily a connection of a collection of names in China and the political musical chairs. It's really 
asking questions about how does China serve China first? What will China do to serve China first? And are some of these geopolitical radical things that are said, do they fit within that context of China serving China first? So that's what I try to look at. Would I be freaked out if China invaded Taiwan? Absolutely. I think everybody would, right? But is that my main scenario? No, it's not. In terms of the data inputs on the machine learning side, how granular is the data? Meaning, are you looking at where geographically demand might be picking up, or is it simply this is what the price is and who cares the source? Because again, with hindsight, if you knew that the source was China and kind of had a rough sense of the history of Russia, Ukraine, maybe that could have been an interesting tell that war was coming. Yes and no. It, to be honest, it had more to do with the value of the CNY. Okay. So, and I'll tell you a little bit about, about our history with the CNY. We were, as far as I know, the only ones who called the CNY hitting 6.7 in August of 2019 with a six-month lead time. And so we have a very good track record with USDCNY. And I would argue that China's buying early in 2022 had a lot more to do with them from a monetary policy perspective needing to devalue CNY. So they were hoard buying before they could devalue the CNY. And I think that had a lot more to do with their activity than Ukraine, than Russia, Ukraine. Okay. So, and if you notice, you know, they they made many of their buys by mid-April. And once that happened, you saw CNY go to 6.8, right? It's recovered a little bit since then. But it, you know, China has needed to devalue the CNY for probably at least nine months. So it's long overdue, but they've been working very hard to keep it strong so that they could get the commodities they needed to last a period of time. Once they had those commodities, they just, you know, let the parachute go and and they let it uh, devalue to 6.8 and actually slightly weaker than 6.8. The, the point about the devaluation is interesting. I forget who I had on a space, but we were talking about the yen and what's happened there and this observation that usually China will start to devalue when they see the yen is itself going through its own devaluation. How do some of those cross-correlations play out with some of the work that on machine learning you're doing? Because there's a human element to the decision to devalue a currency, right? So so the historical data may not be valid, I would think, because you might have kind of a more humanistic element that causes the data to look very different. Well, they're both export-led economies, right? And and we've seen a number of other factors, dollar strength, and we've seen changing consumption patterns. And so, you know, yes, when Japan devalues, you generally see China devalue as well. But also, we've seen a lot of other activities on the demand pull side and on the currency side, especially with the U.S. dollar, in, I would say, over the last two quarters. So yes, I would say that the correlation there is probably pretty high, but there are literally thousands of factors that contribute to to the movement of those of those currencies. Is there anything recently, Tony, in the output that the machine learning is spitting out that really surprises you? That you know, and I, again, I understand that there's a subjective element, which is our own views on on the world, and of course, then the, the pure data. But I, I got to imagine it's fascinating sometimes if you're sitting there and seeing what's what's being spit out if it's surprising. Is there anything that's been kind of an outlier in in the output versus what you would think would likely happen going forward? Yeah, you know, what was really surprising to me after we saw just to stick on CNY for a minute because it's the first thing that comes to mind, 
when we saw CNY do value to 6.8, I was looking at our forecast for the next six months. And it showed that after we devalued pretty strong, it would moderate and reappreciate just a bit. And that was not necessarily what I was hearing, say, in the chatter. Um, it was kind of, okay, here we go. We're going to go to seven or whatever. But our data was telling us that that wasn't necessarily going to happen, that we were going to hit a certain point in, in May, and then we were going to moderate through the end of the year. So, you know, we do see these bursty trends. And then we see, you know, in, in some cases, those bursty trends continue for, say, an interim period. Um, but with CNY, while I would ex I would have on my own expected them, I expected the machines to say they need to keep devaluing because they've been shut down and they need to do everything they can to generate uh, CNY, you know, fund tickets. The machines were telling me that we would, you know, we'd see this peak and then we would we would moderate again and it would kind of reappreciate again. So those are the kind of things that we're seeing that when I talk about this, it's, you know, oh, the other thing is this. So in early April, we had a we have people come back to us on our forecast regularly who don't agree with what we're saying and they complain pretty loudly. So in, well, you in April, we had, real quick, real quick, when you say, I'm, I'm, I, I chuckle when I hear that because whenever somebody doesn't agree with a forecast, they are themselves making a forecast. Of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so, right. Yeah. And so this person was telling us in early April that we're way wrong, that the S&P was going to continue to rally and, you know, they wanted to cancel their subscription and they hated us and all this other stuff. And we said, okay, but the month's not over yet. So let's see what happens. This was probably a week and a half into April. And what happened by the end of April, things came in line with our forecast. And like I said earlier, we were like 0 0.4, 0.6% off for the month. And so, you know, that person, had they listened to us at the beginning of the month, they would, would have been in a much better position than they obviously ended up being in, right? And so, you know, these are the kind of things that we see on a, I mean, we've got hundreds of stories about this stuff, but these are the kind of things that we see on a regular basis. And, and we, we mess up, guys. I'm not saying we're perfect. And, but the thing that we, when we do mess up, we're very open about it. Everything that we do is posted on our, on our website. Every call we make, every error we have is there, warts and all. Okay. And so we're not hiding our performance because if you're using our data to make a trade, we want you to understand the risk associated with using our data. That's really what it comes down to. It reminds me of back in 2011 and in some other periods, I've had similar situations where I was writing and I was very adamant in saying the conditions favored a summer crash, right? I was saying that for the summer and the markets would be going up and people would say, oh, where's your summer crash? And I would say the summer hasn't started. <laughs> like it's amazing it's amazing how people i don't know what it is i don't know if it's just short-termism or just this kind of culture of constantly reacting as opposed to thinking but it, it is it is remarkably frustrating going back to your point at the very beginning being an entrepreneur don't do it uh that you have to build a business with people and customers who in some cases are just flat out naive that's all right though that's a part of the risk that we accept right yeah the no, other no, thing my thought is right no, no that happens with every industry but yeah. you know, from the entrepreneur standpoint you know it, it's you know what you're doing. You know the, the 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 likely outcome of your product, of your service. You're trying to communicate that to end clients. But then in the single role of the die, the die, the end client who comes to you exactly for that, simply because they disagree with you know the output, now says, I want out. Oh yeah. Well, your where is your summer call from 2011? The analogy today is where is your recession call, right? Ah, okay. So good. you know, that's that's become the how come you're not one of us calls right now. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those proof points. And if you don't agree with that, then, 
you know, you're, you're stupid. So, so I would say you never finish with that. There is always a consensus and a something you're, you know, you absolutely must believe in, or you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, thankfully, uh, you know what you're talking about. So appreciate everybody joining this space. Tony, first time you and I are talking, uh, I enjoyed the conversation because I think it's a Thank you, Michael. On, on investing. And I encourage everybody to take a look at Tony's uh, firm and follow him here on Twitter. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tony. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.